Hey, Rockheads. If you haven't already checked out Music to Code By, you really should, especially if you need to focus on anything, like programming. But it's great for kids doing homework, great for reading, great for writing, anything that you need to focus on. The results speak for themselves. I've got hundreds of satisfied customers. Go check out their comments and more at mtcb.pwop.com. .NET Rocks, episode 1177, with guest Derek Bailey. Recorded Monday, August 3rd, 2015. Hey, guess what? It's .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. I'm on the East Coast. He's on the West, North America, of course. We're doing the thing with the stuff. Thing with the stuff. I'm really excited about uh, having Derek come back on the show because a lot has changed. Yeah, I know. It, it was really fun going over the notes and just thinking, wow, you know, the web, it yeah. evolves. Web isn't what it used to be. Ain't your grandfather's web. <laughs> yeah. How are you, man? I'm pretty good. I had a great weekend. You know, it's the end of the summer here. We've uh, The Franklin Brothers Band has been playing great guns this year. We've got 23 revolving members of the band. That's a lot of people. Yeah, Holy but that man. means we can take a gig when we get one. You right. Know, with a 10-piece band with percussion and a horn line and all that stuff. So you got replacements for everybody, or do you have to change up your set depending on who's there? No, we don't change up the set. We have replacements for everybody. Wow. We've got three bass players, two drummers, something like eight or nine or ten horn players. The only people who are constants are Jay and I. Right. Yeah. And uh, that's great. So we, we've had a lot of uh, – get. The, here's a story for you. So we're, we're doing this show at a local bar here, which is barely big enough to hold us, right? Because we're huge. And uh, we don't have a trumpet player. A trumpet player ducks out at the last minute. Ouch. I call the guy who conducted the Coast Guard band for the last 40 years and retired a couple of years ago. No kidding. Who's never played a rock concert in his life, who loves us. And I said, how would you like to play? And he says, are you kidding? Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Lou Buckley is his name. And he can play. Oh, God, he can play. So, you know, he has had his own Dixieland jazz band, you know, as an offshoot of the Coast Guard band for years. Right. And so he's really familiar with jazz, of course, and he can sight read anything. So he doesn't even practice. He just downloads and prints all the charts, which we have online, makes a book. And go ask a few questions because there are some wonky things. And he shows up and he kills it. Nice. Kills it. That was great. Well, and he showed up to practice. Like He didn't show up to practice. He, he did not. He could not come to practice. He just did he it. He showed up at the gig with a book and just killed it. That's funny. I yeah, love that's it. That's great. All right. I got something neat that uh, you showed me, but it's actually in a way appropriate for our show today. So hmm. go ahead. Roll that music. <laughs> All right, buddy, what do you got? All right, so our guest, Derek Bailey, is an expert on RabbitMQ. He is. One might say the expert on RabbitMQ. He's very rabbity. He's very rabbity. But he's not the only rabbit guy around. And thank goodness for that. And RabbitMQ is not the only rabbit. <laughs> Where are you going? <laughs> well, I was at your house once, and you opened a bottle of wine in about three seconds. Oh, and I right. said, I've got to have one of those. What is it? And of course, it's the Rabbit Original Lever Corkscrew with Foil Cutter and Extra Spiral Velvet Black. <laughs> Go to tinyurl.com slash rabbit opener, just in case you forgot how to spell that. It's R-A-B-B-I-T opener. 
and literally three seconds or less. Actually, once you get it aligned, it takes one second. Yeah, just getting it clamped down. And then it's like, click, 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 and your bottle's click, open. Foom, foom. And I was like, what? How did you? <laughs> <laughs> I don't mess around when it comes to opening bottles of wine. Yeah, so it's $40 US and it's worth every penny. You'll you'll never sweat about opening a wine. The worst ones are those little ones where you have to leverage against the glass yeah, lip yeah. of the wine bottle and end up breaking the glass. Yeah. This is just way too civilized and I could not, uh, couldn't resist it. So. Thank you, Richard Campbell. <laughs> That's great. Well, it's summertime, so of course we've been drinking a lot of wine. Yeah, absolutely. The uh, we we talked a bit er- earlier last week or the week before, or so about uh, my wife's birthday party. Yeah, uh, inventorying the gifts. Twenty-two bottles of wine. Good lord. Yeah, that's a lot of wine. Yeah. Now everybody knows how Carl and Richard open wine bottles. <laughs> Hopefully. Uh, we Hey, they're not sponsoring the show. It's just nope. too cool. How would you like to open a bottle of wine in one second? Yeah. Click, click. Just awesome. All right. That's it. Who's Beautiful. talking to us, Richard? Grabbed a comment off of show 743, one we did with one Derek Bailey, where we talked about JavaScript frameworks. And this is from 2012. Mm. And it, you know, just sort of reminds me of how far JavaScript has come in the three years since we did a show, mm-hmm. last did a show with Derek. Mm-hmm. Uh, this comment is from Toby Tellier, who says, uh, hi, Carl and Richard. And this comment's from three years ago. Greetings from Edmonton, Canada. Mm. I just thought I would share a cool moment that occurred in my home yesterday. I was sitting on my living room couch with my laptop and was enjoying the show. I glanced over at my husband, who is a musician and who is listening at his laptop. And I laughed as soon as I noticed that he was kicking back and watching. The Acoustics Addicts. Acoustic Addicts. Yes. That's my show that uh, Rich Caruso and I did on YouTube about acoustic guitars and the differences between them. And yeah, you went into such detail about the way these guitars played. It was, it's, it was really cool. Even as a guy like me who doesn't play guitar, I really enjoyed the analysis. We basically strummed each one and did a spectrum analysis on it so that you could hear the difference, but you could also see the difference in the spectrum. Different kinds of woods like Conan Mm -hmm. and stuff all had different effects. Yeah. Uh, so her husband had come across it from a friend's tweet. We were both geeking out in our own way. <laughs> and thanks so much for the show. It's a great developer resource. I'm planning on going to dev teach in Vancouver this May. Yeah. Wow. Three years ago. That's a while ago. Uh, hopefully we'll get to meet Toby. I don't know if we met. Vancouver's on the West coast, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Just checking. <laughs> You're not going to go there. No. <laughs> Cause who'd talk about that? Who would ever <laughs> talk about it? You wouldn't want to go to the a wrong inside joke between me and Richard. Yeah. It's yeah. Okay. Uh, Toby, thank you so much for your comment. Glad you're really enjoying, uh, the shows. I hope you still are. It's been a few years, but we'd like to send you a .NET Rocks mug. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write us a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via any of the social media sites. We post on every show on Google Plus and Facebook. If you comment there, we'll read it and we'll send you a mug. And that brings us to our guest, Derek Bailey. Derek is a developer, entrepreneur, author, speaker, and technology leader in Central Texas, north of Austin. He's been a professional developer since the late 90s and has been writing code since the late 80s. In his spare time, he gets called a spamming marketer by people on Twitter and blurts out all of the stupid, funny things he's ever done in his career on his email newsletter, which I have got to sign up for. Thanks for coming, Derek. Good to have you back. Well, thanks for having me back. It's great to be here again. Do you remember what we were talking about on the last show? Oh, yeah. I I remember very specifically because it was one of the first real podcasts that I had recorded with. I'd done a few other shows before, but, you know, honestly, I was pretty nervous about being on .NET Rocks, you know, the .NET Rocks. So 
I, I had myself set up in my closet in my bedroom so that I could get good sound quality out of my out of my my room in there with all the clothing and everything. Nice. <laughs> and then we we had this wonderful glitch where the recording didn't work over Skype, so we ended up calling me over the phone. So me having set up everything in my closet made no difference, anyways. And now you've done a <laughs> you've done a few podcasts of your own now. Yeah, I've done a few. I've I've had a couple of different podcasts that I've hosted and uh, currently have my own podcast at entreprogrammers.com. It's a, a fly on the wall look at what it takes to really be an entrepreneur developer with uh, myself and three other guys that have become really good friends over the last couple of years. Oh, that's awesome. Well, we wish you the best of luck with that. Fantastic. Thanks. And by 2012, that's like pre-angular, you know? Oh, yeah. We we're talking backbone and Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. It's just so much has happened in the JavaScript space. A lot. I was, I, I was looking at a bunch of different comments just thinking about how much the language itself has grown up. I mean, we're looking at ECMAScript 6. Right. Yep. You know, it's almost like it's a programming language. Yeah, almost. <laughs> and, you know, the couple of things that we've learned from talking to people about ECMAScript 6 and even ECMAScript 7 is that it's taking some nods from C Sharp and some other modern languages. Oh yeah, it, it definitely is. And I've, I've quite enjoyed that. I spent almost 10 years in .NET and VB and, and C Sharp and seeing some of what ES6 is doing now with arrow functions and, and all that is, is yeah. really encouraging to me. I'm really enjoying it. And we may even have, uh, a sync and a wait. Yeah. 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 There, there's a number of different ways that you can create that now. Um, uh, Kyle Simpson, otherwise known as Getify, has a couple of really good blog posts. I think they're on the David Walsh blog. Um, and he shows how to create what is essentially async and await in ES6 now without actually having the async and await keywords. It's, it's, it's really, it's really interesting to see where JavaScript is going. Yeah. Sure I'm is. really happy to see how it's evolving like this and, and how it's taking on a lot of aspects from really enterprise level languages like .NET and even you know, some of the, the more modern enterprise languages, you know, like Ruby, which is interesting to call Ruby an enterprise language, but it kind of is these days. Yeah, sure. So uh, some things, of course, uh, change and some things stay the same. Is messaging mm-hmm. one of those things that has changed or is the fundamentals of messaging remained? Messaging is one of those old technologies that just keeps coming back round in circles and continues to prove just how valuable it really is. I I like to say that messaging is as old as paper, as revolutionary as the telegraph, and as unique as a fast food restaurant. But it's it's one of those things that's just incredibly powerful and always there for us. Let's define it because, you know, as programmers, we think messaging is many, many things and could even be applied to making a function call you know, uh, mm-hmm. making a call to a to an um, an app or a function or a method somewhere or setting a property. But what is messaging? Does messaging not necessarily have anything to do with the state behind the message, but the message itself? Yeah, really, messaging is just an encapsulation of information and sending that somewhere else. Mm. And it, there there are some languages that do have message based method invocation. I think Ruby is actually one of those where when you make a method call on a Ruby object, you're actually invoking uh, a message-based um, system in, in the process. 
but but the the best way to think about messaging is to take examples from the real world. Okay. And if you've ever gone into a fast food restaurant, as I mentioned a moment ago, never. You no. Who 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 would ever do that? Yeah. I would do that. I stay oh, away. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> if you've ever ordered anything, you know you. What you have is essentially a message-based system in action. You place your order with whoever is at the register. They ring you up. But what happens in, in the real world and electronically these days with all the computer systems in the restaurants is messages are sent throughout the system. There will be a message that gets sent over to the French fry station a message that gets sent back to the burger station, a message that gets sent over to the drink station, all these different stations for all the different components of your order. And you have all of these different people at all of these different stations receiving those messages, looking at their board to see what they need to do, see what drink they need to fill, see what size french fries they need to make. And at the end, when all of these things are done, you have somebody else who's got the master ticket the order that you placed and they've taped it down to your little tray and they're looking at that ticket on the tray and using that ticket to coordinate the end result that you're looking for, which is, of course, your order being placed on that tray so that you can take it back to your seat. And it's really interesting that the the first line of messaging is human. Yes. You know, and that's typically where the problems are. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Very I, I, I wrote a book a long, long time ago about sockets programming, and it started by describing what protocols are. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the protocols have to be the same on both sides, the sending and right. receiving. They have to match, you, you know, modem is modulate, demodulate. That means mm-hmm. that there's a protocol on either side that has to match. And problems happen when there's protocol mismatch. And one of my favorite ways to illustrate that is remember when we had telephones? Yeah, <laughs> almost. And it's we didn't know the number. Different. We didn't have the Googles and the internets and the Bings. We would call 411. I guess you can still do that on your cell phone. Call 411 and the person says, city and state, please. And you say, yes, I would like a Whopper with cheese and, uh, you know, <laughs> or to... <laughs> Even better, uh, a, a stupid person goes into a library, walks up to the librarian and says, uh, I'd like a Whopper with cheese and a small fry and a large drink. And, and the lady says, ma'am, this is a library. She goes, oh, I'm sorry. I like a Whopper with cheese, a small fry, and a small drink. Because you have to be quiet. You have to be quiet in a library. Yes. All right. So all of that to make a joke. I'm sorry. But it does it – does, talk to this whole idea that, you know, the front line of messaging in a real world situation is that person who's interacting with you. Yeah, absolutely. Or or imagine sitting in in high school or middle school and you want to tell your best friend about the person that you think is cute. So you write down this little message, I heart whoever, and you (laughs) fold it up and you very carefully sneak it over to your best friend who sits right next to you while the teacher is not looking. Yeah. You know, that, that little message, that little envelope that you created has, has some, some information in it that is useful for the other person. So they can respond to it by sending a message back or they can take action on it. Maybe you asked them to forward the message on to someone else or, or ask them to ask that person to go to the dance with you or whatever. There's, right. there's things that happen. When we send messages around like that. Right. Now, I mean, it's a browser. Mm-hmm. Everything's a message. HTTP oh, yeah. calls are still messages. 
Yeah, totally. Everything from the, the HTTP request that you send in order to load your browser up with whatever page, the response that gets sent down, that HTML document, all of those AJAX requests that we send back to the server in order to post data to the server or retrieve new data from the server, that is all messaging. That's all these these implicit messages that we're sending around back and forth. Right. But I think there's there's a lot of room, a lot of power that we can attain in our software by making these implicit messaging patterns more explicit in our code. Whether it's in the browser or in Windows or the server or wherever it is, there's there's a lot of power to be had from really really identifying what these patterns are and taking advantage of them. Isn't this the argument for REST as well? It's like, let's just take advantage of the messaging patterns we have. Yeah, I think it is. I'm, I'm not so much up on, on the REST side of things. That's because it's a booby trap, right? Yeah, you're, you're, exactly. Yeah. Every time you try and say anything, it's like trying to identify a color, right? right? That's blue. Oh, no, that's royal blue. It's like, oh, no, that's that's vermilion. It's, yeah, that's right. It's like, I'm doing REST. No, what you're doing is not RESTful at all. Okay. Let's just call it messaging over HTTP and there be you done go. with it. Please, can we? Yeah. All right. So, I mean, this is something we've been doing all the time. Are we? Are you talking about adding more formality to it? This is about transactions, for example. No, not transactions. This is more recognizing that the things we do are based on the way people communicate and formalizing in the sense that we are giving names to these patterns mm -hmm. and we are explicitly and very purposely using these patterns of communication, but not so formal as in, you know, transactions in terms of like the, the, the typical database use of the word transaction where it can roll back, but more transaction as in, Okay, I just placed an order and I paid for it at the at the counter. That's the transaction that I made and here's the order that I received. Right. Yeah, it seems to me what we're really walking up to here is where does messaging end and protocol begin, right? right. How much right. do you know um if you think an entire entire models of programming have been built around messaging like the actor model? Oh yeah. Where uh you know the the way when you you were talking about how Windows sends messages, mm -hmm. Windows itself, the GUI is a message-based actor model kind of uh thing, the message pump. Yeah, you've got this continuous loop in the background of a Windows application, the message pump like you said that's just churning and churning and churning and it's it's pushing messages across these these pipes inside right. of your application it, it, all the time. It registers where it is. It receives mm -hmm. mouse over and mouse move messages from the system, from the operating system, and then passes them onto your code and where you can handle them. Yep. And then we, we typically abstract that into event-based systems on top of that message pump. But right, exactly. It's all messages under the hood. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Coder Foundry. Coder Foundry is the nation's premier .NET boot camp teaching students the full-stack .NET framework plus AngularJS in just 12 weeks, with job placement services available upon graduation. Classes start every 12 weeks. To apply online or to learn more, visit coderfoundry.com slash rocks. And if you'd like to know more about Coder Foundry, you can listen to a 20-minute interview Richard and I did with Bobby Davis from the Coder Foundry, Check it out at tinyurl.com slash coderinfo. So where do messages end and protocol begin? 
So that, that's a fun conversation to have because you can have a lot of different protocols enabling your messages. HTTP is a great protocol to send messages, mm. but there's also other protocols, including in-memory protocols. Like in, in your browser, for example, you can build component-based architectures with Angular or Ember or Backbone or whatever it is, and you can have these different pieces of the application that don't know about each other directly, but still communicate through messages. Mm. So the message is what you're sending back and forth. And the protocol is really more the mechanism yeah. by which you're sending it. Well, that's the message passing protocol. But what about what you do with the messages? Can that and, and how you respond? That can also be defined, described as a protocol, couldn't it? Yeah, you're, you're right. It could. The, 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 the way in which you communicate in the example of the fast food restaurant, again, you, you have certain protocols for when you approach the person at the counter yeah, right. versus when you're sitting down at a nice fancy restaurant. Yeah, they always ask you, do you want the meal or just the sandwich? Yeah. You know, when, right. when you just told them that you want the sandwich. And then yeah, you exactly. say, I want a large Coke. And they say, do you want a medium or a large? <laughs> do you want fries with that? <laughs> now, my favorite one was they tried to sell me a dessert, right? Do you want an apple pie? Oh, do you, do you want a dessert? How about an apple pie? I'll have a filet of fish. Yeah, right. And then, and then <laughs> the the funny part, of course, is that it's the device that's making to do that. I've had them ask me if I wanted a dessert again. Uh, yeah, that's great. <laughs> I've actually gone to a uh, uh, a coffee chain that I won't mention, but uh, it's Dunkin' Donuts. Anyway, I go up <laughs> and I say, you know, I'd like a you know a large iced coffee with half dark roast and half decaf made black, hot, no iced, small. Large. <laughs> Regular? No. Half decaf, half dark roast. Okay. Cream and sugar? It's like they're asking me all the questions I just said. Did you hear what I said? So I just repeat the whole thing over. But, you yeah. know, that's just because they're, there's new people on the job and they don't. They're following yeah, the script. They're following the, the script. Phone, right? They have to put their phone down and stop texting their best friend. All right. We'll stop making fa fun of fast food workers because they're the <laughs> backbone of the American economy. Oh, and I've been a fast food worker more times than I care to admit. Yeah. I've been a cook as well. Now we're software people. And now we're trying we're to software. figure out messaging. That's yeah. right. We're, we're trying to, to bring our, our old experience from yesteryear into the modern era of web development. Yep. And I think we're doing a good job of it, quite honestly. There's there's a lot of great options out there for, for putting messaging into your applications and all the way from the browser down to the server and, and the back end. And, and in the browser, there's there's a lot of components out there. Um, my personal favorite is still Backbone.js. I never really left that bandwagon. Mm. That's old school now. I know it is, but it, it's still so great. I, I love the kind of do-it-yourself architecture. Mm -hmm. And there's this wonderful component called Backbone.radio, which is part of the Marionette.js suite. And it's, it's got all of these wonderful messaging patterns baked into it. And, and these patterns that I'm, I'm talking about, I keep saying patterns, but what we're really talking about is things like an event aggregator where you have this intermediate object in between the event producer and the event consumer. Mm. So this is like a pub sub architecture. Yeah, exactly. Like pub sub architecture. You, you, you publish a message through an intermediate and you subscribe to that message on the other, other end. And it's typically, you're typically talking about events when you say, you know, pub sub or, or event aggregator, but the, the same kind of mechanisms also facilitate other messages like commands. You know, when, when you click a menu in a windows application or even a web application, chances are 
the the code that is handling the event that of that click is not really the code that's actually executing on the back end. There's mm-hmm. there's going to be some message pushed somewhere to say, "Hey, go do this thing." Somebody clicked on this button here, so now go do this thing that the button represents. Mm-hmm. And that's done through again messaging patterns through a command pattern. And then there's of course request response. We all know about request response from making AJAX calls back to the server. Send a request through AJAX call, get a response from the server, and then show it on the screen. Well, and there's a power to that uncoupling, but there's also complexity to it as well. Like I think yes, most of the time when you're thinking through this stuff, you're looking and going, why would I do all these extra steps? Mm-hmm. And that, that complexity comes from not having a complete one one path through the code that you can just look at and understand. So it it does add some additional layers and it and it creates a decoupled system where you have to traverse through okay here's the thing that produced the message now i need to go find the thing that that subscribed to the message and right. figure out what it was doing it's debug resistant systems yes yeah very much so and and a lot of those difficulties are are managed through better documentation which i know is a four letter word in most <laughs> developer circles documentation no who would do but that <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but it's, it's, it's a necessary part of these larger systems. I think personally, for me, the advantages of a decoupled system with messaging patterns in there far outweigh the disadvantages, though, because you now have a system that is built of independent pieces. You don't have this one gigantic behemoth of code where everything knows about everything right. else. I mean, I haven't done a lot of this in JavaScript. But I've done a lot of it with other protocols. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, in, in .NET and so forth. And the big thing mm-hmm. for us was, here's a really distributed system written in multiple languages that are going to version independently. Yep. And the only thing they have to comply with is the protocol of the pub-sub messages. So exactly. a new system comes up, just subscribes to messages. It doesn't know about any of the systems. It just needs to know about the publisher. Exactly. It's like having 23 band members that you can pick and choose from as needed. You just swap them in and out whenever they're available. Who would do that? <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's kind of crazy. I don't know who would do that. You mentioned Marionette.js. Can you tell yes. us about that whole suite for a minute? Yeah, so Marionette was uh, my framework on top of Backbone. So I, I built that in 2011, 2012 era, back when I was on the show the first time. Mm-hmm. And it was uh, my recognizing the need for an application structure and a an, a need to reduce the amount of boilerplate code that I was seeing in my backbone applications. So I created a pretty nice structure that's become pretty popular in, in the last few years and has a, a, a lot of application architecture baked into it, including messaging patterns, an actual application bootstrapping object, and then uh, various types of views that are commonly repeated. So it's just, I mean, Backbone's super flexible. You're you're sort of narrowing it into, all right, I want to manage messaging using Backbone. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So I, very much so. I'm providing a lot of the application architecture that something like Ember.js would give you out of the box. Marionette provides the same kinds of capabilities, but it does it in a very backbone-y way because instead of saying, okay, this is the one true way to do it, it says, all right, here's all of these different components and you can wire them up kind of however you want. Here's some good ideas and some good ways to do things, but you're free to put these pieces together in in different ways, however you want to do it. I'm just trying to deal with backbony as an adjective. (laughs) 
Yes. But I appreciate the thought essentially there. But this still gets to sort of idea of, are we really still talking just about browsers here? Does this make more sense in the Node.js context of just, I uh, want JavaScript to communicate? Like, how do you monitor for events in a browser? Hmm. That's a that's a, a multifaceted question. Um, if, if you're, are you talking about events from the server or yeah, I want to. I'm here. I have my app. My client is subs, wants to subscribe to right. some events occurring, so it speaks to the publisher, right? Yeah. I mean, we generally think of browsers purely as go get it, bring it back. That's it. Right. Not this idea that I would maintain a connection or, or some I could receive a response for something that I'm not specifically asking for. I'm not polling for. Is SignalR the answer there, Derek? Yeah, SignalR is is easily one of the answers. There's also you know Socket IO on the Node side of things. Mm -hmm. um, there's a, a third party service called I think it's called Pusher. That does WebSockets through a third-party service that I've used in the past. But it comes down to WebSockets, really. Yeah, exactly. WebSockets is, and, or long polling if you're in a, right. a really old browser that doesn't have WebSockets. Yeah, but that's what's nice about SignalR is that it down-levels you depending yeah. on what you have. Yeah, yeah definitely. So yeah, having that, that live open connection, you, you're creating a messaging system through WebSockets with SignalR. You've, you've got the server that's churning information and doing things and it's producing a result and it says, hey, this browser needs to know about this result. So mm. it publishes a message through SignalR, through that WebSocket. The browser receives it and says, hey, I got this wonderful information from the server. Let me handle this. Let me show the user what is happening, the results. I'll format this and, and they'll be good to go. Mm. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is now? Uh, it must be that happy time again. You guessed it. It's time to call up Home Depot, ask to be transferred to the hardware department, wait on hold for five minutes till someone answers, and then loudly and rudely order a Whopper with cheese <laughs> for delivery. <laughs> oh, nice callback, dude. Thanks, man. It's actually time to give away a Telerik DevCraft collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first, Telerik DevCraft is the most complete .NET toolbox for web, mobile, and desktop development. With the addition of UI for Xamarin to the DevCraft bundle, you can create compelling native mobile experiences with your C-sharp skills. Download a free trial at tinyurl.com slash devcrafttrial. Awesome, dude. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Gary Woodfine from the UK. Congratulations, Gary. Yeah. I'll clap for you, sir. Gary just won the Telerik DevCraft collection. That's a big pile of awesome from Telerik, if you don't know. Uh, a long-running sponsor of .NET Rocks. And uh, just for being a member of the fan club, if you don't know what we're talking about, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. Every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the fan club. But you got to sign up to win. And we also like to ask our guest, Derek Bailey. If you had $5,000 U.S. to spend on technology today, what would you be buying? Well, I got to say, I might actually go out and buy that Telerik DevCraft license that you just gave away because I honestly, I, I love Telerik stuff. I've mm. been a huge fan of their stuff for years. actually worked for them for a year. Phenomenal company, great products, love what they do. Yep. Along with that, though, I'd, I'd, I'd have to go buy a 3D printer. That's something that I've really, really been wanting for the last few years. One of those big, nice things that can really produce, 
you know, not just little trinkets and little statues, but I, I want something that can 3D print some stormtrooper armor for myself, <laughs> you know? Something big, something massive. I, w- I want to print Darth Vader's outfit for my son. Not wow. those cheap little plastic costumes that you get at Target or Walmart. So you want super glue as a material, basically. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Have you actually looked at some of these higher-end uh, uh, 3D printers? There's amazing ones out there. Oh, I know. They're, they're just incredible. And, and I've, I've got friends that do all this costume-making stuff by hand with foam molds and plastics that they pour into it and all this. And, and I'm like, yeah, forget that. I don't have the patience for it. Just give me a, a CAD software and a 3D printer and let me go at it. Yeah, somebody's mm-hmm. already solved this for you, right? You just exactly. go download the Darth Vader uh, 3D <laughs> models, and you fire it out to your printer, and off it goes. We're inching exactly. towards replicators here, gentlemen. <laughs> I bet. But I'll tell you, you know, I... If I was going to get a 3D printer, and I'm not haven't got one yet, I think I these resin laser printers with their amazing mm. resolution. The, the resin's expensive, but stuff looks good, and it it's bigger. Yeah. So, they, but they're that's five grand like that. Boom, gone. Oh yeah, easy. Yeah, easy. The the commercial grade additive uh, manufacturing devices, which is sort of the broader term of that, hundred fifty thousand, mm. three hundred thousand, no problem. Oh man. Yeah, we we actually looked at when well, we we took the tour of SpaceX in Hawthorne, California. We looked at a laser sintering machine that I think was a million dollar machine, but it was literally building parts that went into space. Wow, I, I might need to win this five thousand dollar contest more than once. <laughs> <laughs> there was one part I remember. I don't know if we're under NDA, but there was one part I remember. It looked like a solid piece of metal until you held it up to the light and you could see the light shining through it. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Very fine. Yeah, it was really interesting, depending on which way you held it. But it was really sturdy. But that's the name of the game in space, right? As light as possible. Yeah. So, And I love that idea that it wasn't additive manufacturing as a cheaper substitute for some other method. This right. was the only way to make this thing. Yep. Right. To make it that light and that strong was to use a laser sintering machine. Cool stuff. All right. I Just before we did the break, you described a transactional process that I... I think I want to press against a bit because okay. when you are a publisher mm-hmm. and you're sending and you, I'm, I'm thinking through the pub sub panel, you do not know what's on the other end, who's subscribed to your messages. You, you, in fact, you don't care. You just have a set of messages you're publishing. You push them up to the, uh, the pub sub service and then you're out. You forget yep. all about it. It's right. up to the subscriber side and that. Uh, pub sub service to deal with the rest. So I think it's really challenging when you're thinking through this stuff that you don't necessarily know who's connected. And that's an asset, right? This abstraction is an advantage. Yeah. Mm. yeah so there, there's, there's two models of handling that there's, there's the brokerless world, which is kind of more peer to peer where you, you sort of do know who's on the other end and you can kind of sort of say, Hey, you need to go do this. So you're talking like process-to-process communication or peer-to-peer communication, really. But in, in order to do that, that means that the publisher maintains its own subscription list. Yeah, and, and that there's advantages and disadvantages of that. But my personal preference is that brokered model that you just mentioned, that you just described, where you have that service in the middle so that you don't know and don't care who's on the other end. And frankly, I like that model because I don't want to know. I don't want to have to keep that list. That's I don't the want service to bus idea, right? Yeah. 
It, 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 it's exactly that. It's the, you've got this, this service that is just pushing messages along for you. You send a message to it and it's fire and forget to a certain point. Mm -hmm. But it's also a weird chunk of code. This is not your app. This is literally right. just a service sort of floating somewhere yep. that, that each end has to push messages to sort of connect up with. Yeah. Like who runs that? Where does that live? Well, it depends on, again, where you're doing it. But if you're doing this in the back end, in, in your, your actual server architecture, my personal preference is RabbitMQ these days. I've, I've right. fallen in love with RabbitMQ, the mm. way it works, the way it handles messaging patterns implicitly, and the community that it has around it. It's just a phenomenal community. Well, and you're not the only one to said so, too. People say great things about RabbitMQ, mm -hmm. but what's different about it? Because there's so many messaging services. And by many, I mean more than one. Yeah, more than one. There's there's RabbitMQ, there's ZeroMQ, there's MSMQ, there's what used to be called WebSureMQ, there's Amazon's SQS, there's a Azure service bus, there's, there's all these different ones out there. For me, RabbitMQ made sense, one, because it's open source, uh, two, because it is truly cross-platform. It runs on Erlang, which may be an odd language for some people, but it's an incredibly stable, hyper-fast language that is cross-platform. You can run it just about anywhere you can, you can imagine. Right. And it has connectivity client libraries for just about every programming language out there. It's, I, I'd have a hard time finding a programming language that's not like completely esoteric, but one of the more normal languages out there that doesn't have a RabbitMQ library. And that, that makes it very appealing to me because it allows me to write my applications in many different languages running on many different platforms and not have to care that, that I'm doing it that way. It's, it's, it's an asset in being able to do it that way because I work in large systems in the healthcare industry for my primary client right now where we do have a lot of different languages and platforms. Well, and, there's, and the trap here, of course, is the messaging infrastructure looks simple. You just write your own. Right. Yeah, totally. It's, <laughs> you know, no big deal. <laughs> But it's one of those things where, yeah, you can build a pilot of almost anything and it'll work just fine. But oh, if yeah. you actually want it to scale and you really want to do all of the features, it's a lot of subtle stuff. And, and yeah. this is free and it's free, free. This is free, oh, like yeah, yeah. free, free, beer. free. Right. Right. What's the license? Is it? I don't remember the exact license, but, um, it's one of the super permissive ones. Yeah. It is a super permissive one. It's all up on GitHub. Um, the, the RabbitMQ community people, the community advocates, like uh, Alvaro Videla, really great guy. Um, he likes to say that if you're being charged for RabbitMQ, then you're buying a, a, a bill of goods because RabbitMQ is 100% free. I mean, there's plenty of paid-for resources out there to learn RabbitMQ and get training and things like that, but RabbitMQ itself, 100% free. Mm. Mozilla Public License, that's yeah. permissive. Yep. Holy man. Yep. <laughs> Use it. Just admit you're using it. That's right. about it. Hey, but you mentioned a, a moment ago the difficulty of all of the subtleties and everything. And I did an interview with Udi Dahan a couple of months ago. You can, you can find this interview up on my website at watchmecode.net. Uh, just look for Watch Me Code Udi Dahan on Google and you'll find this. And in the middle of this interview, we talk about this problem of, of how difficult it can be and, and how it's not very intelligent to try and write your own wrappers around these messaging patterns these days. Mm. You know, something like RabbitMQ is going to bake a lot of these patterns in for you. 
But then there's additional patterns and additional things on top of that. And you're going to want a real service bus in order to, to actually use a messaging pattern in large scale applications. And at one point in the conversation, you know, Udi looks at me and says, you know, most people don't realize just how hard can it be? And I say something like, yeah, I, I know exactly what you're saying. And just how hard can it be? And Udi responds, really dang hard. <laughs> <laughs> and it's hey, true. That's a scientific measurement right there, right exactly. from the horse's mouth. What, how, Rabbit MQ, tell us, like, what are its boundaries of what it does? Would you call it an enterprise service bus or would you call it client and server side messaging? What? It, it, it is a message broker and a, and a message queuing system. So it, it facilitates all of these other things. End service bus, which is UDI's service bus or mass transit or my own little Node.js service bus that I'm building called Rabbis. Um, all of these different service buses will connect to RabbitMQ and use it as the message transport, the, the, the protocol, which is AMQP and the, the brokering service, which is RabbitMQ itself with, with the exchanges that it provides. And then the queues on which your message consumers attach to and, and then consume messages from. So it's, it's the infrastructure to handle the network and the distribution of messages and the routing of messages to make sure that your messages are going to the right place at the right time. Okay, so it isn't uh, it do, it isn't a service bus, but no. it, it's what you would use to send and translate those messages. Right. So if if you're going to go grab in service bus, you're going to need an actual message bus and a message broker a to broker. use. And you, yeah, you, you can use MSMQ or Azure services or RabbitMQ or a number of other message queuing technologies or message queuing servers. And RabbitMQ is one of the more popular ones these days. So in the, in the .NET space, there's, uh, there's the RabbitMQ.NET client, there's mm -hmm. EasyNetQ, yep. the .NET and Service Bus client, RabbitBus. Right. And then there's stuff between uh, the bridges between Microsoft MSMQ and RabbitMQ. What is it? Right. RMQ, MSMQ, something like that. And then there's a couple PowerShell tools too. Yep. And then of course there's stuff for Ruby, Python, PHP, Perl, C and C++, Node.js, Go, Erlang, Haskell, and uh, Chef and Puppet, even uh, database integration. So yeah, this is pretty deep and pretty rich. It is. It's a it's a phenomenal ecosystem of of messaging infrastructure and architecture and. One of the things that I love about RabbitMQ is there, there's a book called Enterprise Integration Patterns, which is basically the Bible of messaging. Yeah. It's, it's kind of a difficult book to read on its own because it's not really meant to read on its own. You read the intro and the first chapter, maybe the second chapter as well, and then you use the rest of the book as a reference. And time and time again, as I'm paging through the book, figuring out exactly what I need to be doing with my messaging architecture, I'm finding that RabbitMQ either has it baked in or has something that facilitates it so easily it might as well be baked in. Okay, so here's a question I can tell is on everybody's mind. When do I decide that I need to use this, these patterns and messaging and all of that stuff uh, in terms of my scale, my size, how, you know, if I just have, uh, if I'm just supporting maybe a thousand clients or something like that, am I going to need this? Or is this really a tool that helps me scale up? 
it is a tool that helps you scale up, but it's one that becomes important much sooner than most people think. And the easiest example, the example that nearly everybody has run into is trying to send an email from a web server. Right. You've, you've got a web page that somebody's typing into, maybe it's a contact form, mm. and they click the button and it posts back to the server. And the server has to format the message and figure out the to address and the from address and get all the details of the email put together. But then it has to actually make connection to an SMTP server sure. somewhere and send the actual message. And while it's well, doing that, it's blocking the socket. And yeah, exactly. The user is waiting. The socket's being blocked. There's you know a nice little AJAX spinner on the screen or a blank white page or whatever it is. And there's potential for failure. You have to retry failed messages that haven't been sent. And mm. you got to stick it in the database somewhere so that you can try it again later. Yep. And there's all these things that we do just to send an email. And we can simplify that dramatically just by putting a message queue in place. Just send a message across RabbitMQ. Take, get, get the email that they're sending from the, the person's name. Get the body that they typed into your contact form. And just shove that across RabbitMQ. And on the other end of RabbitMQ, then you have all this freedom and flexibility. You don't have to worry about the user waiting around for the email service to come back up before the web server responds. Now, the non-messaging way to do that would be just to throw it in a table in a database and pull it out on another side. But now you have all sorts of other issues around uh, you know, you know, flipping a bit that says I'm processing it and what if that gets stuck and all, all those problems. Yeah, so that is the perfect poor man's message queue. Yeah. I've done that a countless number of times. And if and you ever find yourself man's doing message it, queue because it, yeah, it just, exactly. it's a world of hurt, my friends. It is. Yeah, if you're using a table as a message queue, you are in hell. You're in hell. That's the definition <laughs> yes, of developer hell. But talking about brownfielding and messaging infrastructure, the big battle I have with folks is you go to this one-way message approach, and if you've built a bunch of software that counts on two-way communication, like untangling that's not a small thing. Mm. No, it, it's not. That's for sure. And there are some powerful patterns in messaging that we can use to help untangle that. You mean we can't? You, you can't just plop messaging in there and expect it to pro perform miracles. But we can get that two-way communication facilitated with RabbitMQ or or whatever else we're using through the request response pattern. All right. So let's talk through the request response pattern because using this as a, re as a retrofit is really interesting. Yeah, I, I've done this recently, actually. I had two systems that needed to communicate with each other in this job scheduling system. And I, I needed to get information about what schedules were going to run next. But I needed that in the browser where the user was looking at the administrative web page. And this was already working software? Yeah, this is already working software. It had been right. up and running for about a year. And it was fairly complex software, too. And there was this back-end process that had the knowledge of what was going to run next. And I could have hijacked the database that the back-end process was using, but that would have involved duplicating logic and trying to figure out what these status codes mean and reformatting things on my end and just, just a big, giant mess of of duplicating code that I really didn't want to duplicate. So I, I put RabbitMQ in place. In, well, I already had RabbitMQ in place, but I added it to this part where I needed to get information out of the back end. So what I'm doing 
is I'm making a request. I'm sending this request through RabbitMQ, and this request has two things. It has a reply to queue, and it has a correlation ID. And on the other side, after I've published this message through RabbitMQ, this backend service that knows what is going to run next, it picks up this request, and it says, oh, hey, you want to know what's running next. Here, I've got that list for you right here. And it formats it nicely and makes it human-readable and does all this wonderful stuff to create a data structure that I can use. And then it uses the reply to queue and says, oh, there's a reply to queue. I'm going to push this message straight back to that reply to queue because you told me to with the reply to queue setting. And then it says, oh, there's a correlation ID. I'm going to send the correlation ID back with this response. And now my web server, it says, okay, I've sent this request. I'm going to listen for this correlation ID on this queue. Oh, look, there's my message. There's my correlation ID on that queue. Mm -hmm. I know what to do with this information. I know that I sent this request on behalf of this user. Yeah. So I'm going to take that information, format it so that it is human readable in HTML, and send it back out to the user so that they can see what's running next. Nice. Now, we've talked about the rainbows and the unicorns of messaging. Is there mm -hmm. an evil downside? Are there any downsides at all? There is. We, we've talked about the complexity that it adds with decoupled process and having an inability to just trace through linearly how the, how the code and, and data is flowing. But there's a lot of great tools out there for management and monitoring of your message queues. You can use something like in Service Bus, which provides a lot of logging and and uh, auditing capabilities, and you can get good insight into the real flow of the data through your system through these additional tools. And one of the traps you fall into when you're dealing with messaging is that we've spent a lot of time, and we've said it too, with guaranteed delivery, you know, all of that certainty and so forth. It's like, what happens when a message does not get delivered? The service you were calling to isn't there. Like, when, where is the timeout? Where does that message go? Does it block the queue indefinitely? Like, what happens when stuff goes wrong? Well, I think, uh, and I'm not answering, I'm furthering the question here. Uh, I think about SMTP and POP3, right? And you know, the email yeah. systems that you, you have a, a retry queue. And when yeah. things don't work, they go into the retry queue and they try for, I don't know, a number of days that you set. And then it sends a message back to the sender that says, "Hey, we couldn't deliver this, but hang on, there might be a, it might resolve itself." And then, uh, then there's a permanent fail message that gets sent back. But, but we're human; we can read those and mm -hmm. act appropriately. What's the equivalent in the world of automated messaging? Well, quite honestly, I was going to use that exact example at, to illustrate how it works in messaging systems because that that is exactly how it works. When, when a message fails, when, say, you have what's called a poison message, a message that is somehow invalid for the code that's trying to process it, well, that poison message is going to get rejected by the code that's trying to handle it. And it's go, it, it's going to go into, in RabbitMQ, what we would call a dead letter exchange. It's, it's an, it's an exchange that forwards a message over to another queue so that it can sit off to the side. And let a human being or some other process come along and examine it and figure out what's wrong. But there, there's a lot of different options there. There's there's retry queues, exactly like you said with SMTP. There's uh, just, you know, hey, I failed, but I know I can recover from this later. Let me just knack the message, negative acknowledge the message back to the end of the queue. 
so that by the time it comes back to me, hopefully this will be resolved and I can try again. Oh, but if I, if I'm knacking the message too many times, it's probably a bad message. Let me send it over to that poison message queue so it can be dealt with later. I suppose it also depends on what the message is and what its purpose is that you can. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. If it's something that can be thrown away because another message is coming in the next 10 minutes or whatever. Right. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. If, if you're dealing with events, if you're just chucking messages over the wall, this happened, this happened, this happened, chances are you don't really need to hold on to all of those messages. You can just let them die. Just let them drop off the queue and you'll get another one here in a moment. No big deal. Richard, it reminds me of a conversation we had, I don't know, about, way back when about using UDP for real-time gaming. Yeah. Whereas, you know, TCP, when you send a socket over TCP IP, it's guaranteed delivery. And you fire and forget. But when you send a message over UDP, it's fast, and uh, but there's no guarantee that they will get there in the right order, the order that you sent them, or that they'll get there at all. Yep. So typically what we used to do in back in the day is just duplicate them. Send them twice. Send them twice. <laughs> and uh, each message has a number. And, oh, I already got that number. I can ignore the second one. Yeah. Yeah, and that, that kind of idempotence which is the term for not processing the same message twice. It's important. That and that's, that's something that you, you need to think about. But that's a great example of, of how you, you can you know, work around some of these problems. There's, there's a, a, a message queue called Gearman that guarantees the message will either be not delivered or delivered multiple times. <laughs> One or the other. Yeah, one or the other. You know if it's not going to get delivered because Gearman just crashed and you couldn't send it. Yeah, right. Or you know it's going to it's going to potentially be sent multiple times because Gearman said, "Hey, I'm sending this." But Gearman is just going to sit there and retry, 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 retry until the code on the other end says that it actually processed it. Okay, before we uh, uh before we close the door here, You've got uh, some training packages available. You're you're doing a lot of stuff with RabbitMQ. Tell us about that. I am. So I, I've got a complete package ground up for learning RabbitMQ at rabbitmq4devs.com. You can spell that with the number four or F-O-R, rabbitmq4devs.com. It will take you from installation of RabbitMQ on Windows, Mac, or Ubuntu Linux all the way through figuring out the basic management and configuration of RabbitMQ to writing code that uses these messaging patterns. And then, in addition to those uh, screencasts that cover that, you'll get a couple of different ebooks that talk you through and walk you through the various patterns of messaging architecture, as well as use a very unique story-driven approach on figuring out when and where and what configuration you really need inside of RabbitMQ. I was going to ask about about the guidance factor there, because that seems to be the missing link in most training. It, it is. That really is the missing link in most training. And, and I took a, a unique approach in that and in trying to say that there is not one way that you're supposed to do things with RabbitMQ, because frankly, you could use just about any exchange type that you want for any scenario that you want. You just got to jump through some hoops in some cases. Right. But it works. So the the ebook that I wrote, RabbitMQ Layout, which is part of this package, it takes a story-driven approach where you get to be inside the head of another developer as they are working through these problems of messaging. Love it. And trying to figure out how to most effectively use RabbitMQ in different situations. Can, and real quick before we end, can you just tell us the airport baggage claim story? 
Yeah. So, oh man, <laughs> airport baggage claim. So, um, there, there's a, there's an anti pattern in RabbitMQ, which is actually a, a messaging pattern called selective consumer. And the idea is that you send messages to a queue and you try to pick and choose which messages you handle. Well, in RabbitMQ, this is an anti-pattern because RabbitMQ doesn't allow you to to truly select which messages you get from the queue. If you're connected to this queue, you potentially get any or all messages from that queue. And the equivalent of this is like going to the airport baggage claim where your luggage is is trying to be offloaded so that you can get it and seeing that your luggage is coming up the chute somebody else takes a look at that luggage and sees that it doesn't belong to them and they chuck it back down the hole to the end of the line because it wasn't theirs. <laughs> yes. That's ridiculous, right? You you would scream if you saw somebody doing that. And that's right. kind of the equivalent of what's happening with the selective consumer anti-pattern in RabbitMQ. It's a great pattern in messaging, but in RabbitMQ, they bake that in with their routing piece, with mm. the, the, the cues and bindings that you have. So you pre-filter and pre-select messages so that they only go to the correct queue so that only the right the only the code that can handle that message will get that message know your tools kids exactly derek bailey thank you so much it's been a great hour thanks it has been great oh hey one last thing before we go i would like to offer a 20 percent discount to anybody that wants to pick up that RabbitMQ for devs package just enter the code .net rocks spell it out all one word and you'll get 20 percent off of that package how awesome is that Thanks. Thanks. I thank you. Our listeners, thank you. And I thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a